there. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Withdrawal, a weekly discussion on antidepressants and the issues surrounding them. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 25 of Let's Talk Withdrawal, a weekly podcast discussing antidepressants and mental health. This week we have an interview with Sinead. Sinead describes her 16 years of treatment with antidepressants, her attempts to withdraw, and how she feels about taking medications for her emotional distress. Sinead, thank you so much for talking with me. I wanted to start really by just asking a little about your own experiences of the mental health care system and how you first came into contact with psychiatric drugs. Well, I'm I'm 39 now, and at the age of 23, almost 24, I remember quite vividly considering the possibility that I might have this um, this this depression thing that I had maybe heard a bit about some, what's that, 16 years ago. I, I suspected it because now in hindsight, I look back and I think the cir- life circumstances at that time um, have brought me to um, a place of confusion and sadness and uncertainty. A lot of uncertainty and loneliness. Um, I had I had just come back from our one year abroad with um, two great friends. We'd lived in Canada for a year, and I, I mean, it was brilliant. It wasn't without some ups and downs, like everything in life. And and I had probably always been a, a female who, depending, probably not every month of the year, but I had most certainly someone who struggles with my monthly cycle and the, the sort of moods that might come along with with each month. Some are worse than others. But circumstances had kind of got to me and I was certainly feeling, mostly I was feeling uncertain about what next, which is probably quite normal for a, a, a girl of 23. I had a degree. But what did I do with it? What do I do next? Um, and I became so emotional one night that I decided I was going to go to the GP the next day, which I did. And, you know, to be to be honest, uh, at the time, I felt he might not believe that I have this thing that I think I have, which is depression. And I want him. I, I did. I did actually really just sort of want an answer in the form of a pill that would not be addictive and that I could just just take the edge off what I was feeling. He did very um, sympathetically and quickly reach for his prescription pad and gave me a, a very well-known and very controversial SSRI called paroxetine. And I was probably in his nice GP. I don't think I've I think I've seen him once since. I saw him two weeks later for a checkup, and another six weeks later, and that was it. I don't think I've seen that GP ever again. Right. Uh, which is you know probably very similar uh, story for a lot of people. And Sinead, how did you feel about walking away with an antidepressant? Because some people think, oh, thank God, some relief. Some people, like me, the first thing they do is read the patient information leaflet and then worry about side effects. What was your experience? Well, that is, it's so great that you ask that because I remember it so well. It was it was a, a, morning, a morning in May or June, so the weather was picking up. It was really nice. I had a first appointment and immediately afterwards I went swimming and I just from have and I believe looking back now and I've done an awful lot of introspection James which I'm sure many of your listeners are aware uh, or have done themselves too trotting over old memories to try and piece together where where am I in the middle of all of this but I do remember before even getting the prescription uh, at the chemist 
feeling inspired and motivated and upbeat just having been listened to for probably 12 minutes or less by the you know by the my local doctor so off I went swimming felt better already in my own head which is not unusual for anybody going through something if they're showing a little bit of compassion and just have a few minutes to gather themselves the irony being I I think that that I think that highlights a sort of an ironic point really that I I managed to get listened to and offload and before I actually ingested any of the tablets there I was starting to make slightly more positive life choices for example going for a quick early morning swim and I I was a little bit frightened uh, not for I was a bit skeptical about taking them but in 2001 or two, when when that when 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 I first began them, they definitely were less controversial and less studied than they are now. So I had probably not really had any huge adverse reactions to any other medications throughout my life, and I I felt that it was the right thing to do to try them. And what did it feel like to start them? Did you struggle with adverse effects? Did they have any effect on your mood? How did you get on initially? Initially, um, the doctor wanted to see me again two weeks later. Um, so I booked in uh, to go and see him two weeks later. And um, I noticed for those first two weeks that I felt really tired. And I didn't even put, join the dots together at this stage. I was so casual about, you know, about taking them. What I did notice um, the very first night, I sort of wonder, am I am I just being so open to suggestion that I'm making this stuff up? Or is it true? But I, I, I'm I'm fairly certain I remember feeling like I was on a really fast train in bed at night, the very first night that I took them, and being a wee a little bit um weirded out by it. I wasn't drunk, I you know, but it felt a little bit like the way one might feel when their head's spinning and they go to bed dizzy. Yeah. It felt strange, um, but not scary enough for yeah. me to um throw them in the bin where they belonged. So um, I did go back to the doctor two weeks later and I said that I did feel, couldn't be sure, but I did feel somewhat less upset by things. Now, if you think about it, two weeks later, my monthly cycle would have also been playing a part as nature does. And I have, you know, obviously at that stage in my life was not open to or willing to take any other options into account I just I simply would have I was much more blinded by the possibility of this pill just I would be on it for six months and get me through this little period and you know that would be it so I went back went back after two weeks and he said I want to see you again in six weeks which he did and then um, by that stage now I had previously already this is not because of the antidepressants but I had previously already applied to university uh, to do a postgraduate and had done that during this time of uncertainty so by the time I was seeing the doctor after the six-week check I already knew that I was going to be leaving Northern Ireland for another couple of years to go and study in Liverpool so I was moving I was on the move and so he gave me a six-month supply and off I went to Liverpool with my yeah with enough medication and thereafter I never saw that doctor again and then began the journey of living in different places and therefore registering with different GPs each time and um, seeing a string of GPs. And just out of interest, what were you studying, Sinead? Social work. That's great. A very worthwhile thing to do. So you've moved over to Liverpool and you've got your medication. What happened next for you? Well, interestingly, the next couple of months passed um, fairly uneventful. Um, I 
I guess my moods felt that they were somewhat more upbeat. I engaged in my studies and after probably close to nine months of being on them, I can't remember if it was a visit home with a GP here or a GP. I must have arranged to go to see the GP because I, I, it was either a GP in Liverpool or at home. I, I wanted to speak to them about the possibility of getting off them yeah. because I felt that I am on the same dose, 20 milligrams, and I don't feel the same way I did three, four months ago. I, I feel a bit flat. Well, your body adapts to the drug over time, doesn't it? That was exactly what was happening. I was I was reaching dependency, yes, but I was reaching tolerance. And so the GP left it open to me. It was up to me. You know, you could either, he said, you could either go up to 30 yeah. or we could look at getting you off. And I thought, okay, well, I'll try 30 and I'll come off another time. It's a common thought, isn't it? If you felt a little bit of benefit at the beginning, whether that's placebo or not, you kind of hope you might get the same benefit again if you increase your dosage. And if the risks of going up are not explained to you at the time, there's no reason to try and stop, is there? Yeah. So instead of going down, I ended up with 10 milligrams more going into my system and with very little warning about how to begin that dose you know should how how it should be introduced I then came into contact with one GP I guess when I came home for a visit to get the prescription repeated I, I can't remember but I remember speaking to another GP not that long afterwards and he was the first person ever to mention the possibility of um tolerance and dependence and I was quite horrified by that and wanted to believe that you know, may well be the case, but, you know, that's not going to really occur here. You know, they've served me okay up till now. And uh, I remember him saying, but as wise as he seemed, he also planted a very uh, dangerous seed in my mind because what he said, and I later realised he must have, he must have believed he, he was a locum. That's what it was. He was a locum GP. And he, I believe, might have been a bit surprised that I was already on 30. And he planted this seed, which was when you come off them, what you do is you take one every other day. Yep. That old chestnut. Yeah. <laughs> one, one every other day for two weeks. And then one every three days for a week or two, whatever you want. And then maybe if you need to, one every four days. And then, you know, your body will tell you. So although he was equally trying to be responsible, like he obviously had knew something, but it was the worst, worst advice I could have possibly gotten. So I wanted to, again, I reached what you might call tolerance, I suppose, with the 30. And throughout different stages of life, I... um, I then moved to London um, and lived there, didn't really come home from Liverpool and got a social work job, carried on with life, was compliant, if you like, with my medication. But it, it definitely dawned on me before I was even on them a full year that if I missed a dose, quite busy, sometimes I wouldn't get the prescription renewed or I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But I learned fairly early on that missing a dose or two was it was bad news. It, it resulted in suffering that it didn't, you know, deserve. Yeah. Luckily for me, it's not as bad as the likes of um, some of the terrible stories that we have now heard about. But certainly the, the, the way that it impacted on me left me jumpy, frightened, unable to concentrate, feeling seasick and bursting into tears. And that's with two, maybe two, two tablets being missed, as little as that. 
it's quite a rude awakening, isn't it? And when that happens, your first thought isn't maybe I'm dependent on the drug. Your first thought is maybe it's my anxiety coming back because I haven't got so much of the drug in my system. So you don't even blame dependence then, do you? That's right. Well, for me, in the very early days, I just was weirded out and thought, what's wrong with me? Yeah. What, what, what on earth is it? What, what? And then I, I, almost like a, uh, a level of agitation would, would come over me. So that definitely planted a seed quite early on. I must have only been 25 or 6 by this stage. So by the, certainly by the time I was on it two years, I was already on it longer than I ever planned to be on it. Yeah. You know, this I was supposed to only be on it in my mind for six months. And so when I realized what it was like to miss a tablet, then I thought, well, I'll try and come off it. And on more, more times than I can even try to count now, I decided because it, as far as I was aware, it wasn't that big a deal. So you didn't need to go to your doctor. You didn't need to go bothering your doctor to have a consultation about coming off this drug that they put you on in the first place and that they reassured you wasn't addictive. That was one of the first things I asked the GP back in Northern Ireland on that very first visit was, are these addictive? And he said, no. So at one point in my early days in London, thought I'll do this. I'll do this one one every other day business. And so I tried that and quickly realized that doesn't right. That's the drug that isn't working. That's not the method for me. What other ways are there? Spoke to pharmacists who were a bit more conservative in their outlook. They were maybe dropped down to, there's a liquid version. One of them did point out that there was a liquid version, which was helpful. But he said it might just be easier to cut them in half. And I did that for months and months and months. Now, I had no life. I um, I had no quality of life because I felt sick. I had, you know, the kind of flu-like symptoms. I felt very flat in my moods. And I wondered, you know, I wondered if it was any point, you know, maybe I just had this illness and I needed to take these tablets. I mean, what that was, you know, that was what was going the narrative that was going on for me at that time. Why would I put myself through this suffering if, if taking this tablet makes me feel better? But yet then then came in the, the 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 obvious sort of conclusion that I had already reached, which was, hang on, Sinead, you took 20, you felt good. And then that wore off. Yeah. You took 30. You felt better. And then that wore off. So is this just going to be a ping pong thing of yeah. staying on, going off, st- trying to come off and never getting off? Yeah. Is this what my life is going to be about? And that is what my life was about for the next seven or eight years. This battle of not wanting to be on this medication anymore, but really, how do I safely come off it? You feel trapped, don't you? There's physical dependence going on, but there's an emotional dependence too. You know that you don't want to be on the drug for life, but you kind of intuitively know that trying to come off is probably going to have a major impact on your life. And most people don't have space in their lives necessarily to spend six months in bed or whatever else it might cause, so you feel trapped. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how many times I tried to really white-knuckle it mm. and say to myself, right, Maybe the next few months are just going to be hard and I need to just be gentle on myself and I need to just um, take it easy. I, I, I tried. I, I tried that, but my quality of life was quickly becoming, I, I felt so unbelievably flat mm. that it was more flat than I ever felt before I went into the doctor that, yeah. you know, those few years before. But it was a strange flat. It was a. It felt like it was a synthetic flat, and I can't really. Exp- I wish I could put that into better words. But it would. There was a knowing there that something wasn't right. Yeah. 
Um, so I was really trapped between a rock and a hard place. And then the story really begins because I decided um, I was going to come off them cold turkey right, because okay. nothing else had worked. Nothing else had worked. So I was going to really just get them out of my system yeah. and be done with it. Yeah. And I did manage it uh, and uh, didn't last for very long. Probably once I got to zero, I think I lasted about three months until I was back in the doctors, absolutely crying my eyes out. Yeah. Um, but so tormented with this feeling like the world had ended and I was the only person left yeah. on the whole planet. That I, and I, Disassociation, I suppose, is what yeah. it could be called. Yeah. I, I, but not one doctor suggested that it could have been perhaps you came off them too quickly. Well, that was, that was the thing. Perhaps you came off them too quickly isn't a helpful approach because uh, – it, it doesn't paint the whole picture no. it, for me. It's like, well, that is, suggests that they were somehow doing something helpful in the first place, when in my view, they're doing something very, very harmful. Yeah, yeah. So I went on to another drug very briefly, um, Prozac, yeah. and came off it after about nine days because I, yeah, I, I knew very quickly that it wasn't, it wasn't agreeing with me. It was it was yeah. not subtle. I couldn't like I really couldn't function and I was um so hyper agitated. Well, you would have been so sensitized by the changes you tried to make, and it takes quite a while for your nerves to stop jangling, doesn't it? And your body then reacts quite strongly to any further change. So I trotted back to the doctors and said, This isn't working. I think it's probably best that you give me Siroxit again. Mm. It 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 isn't brilliant, but it worked. It kind of held me together. Mm. I'll just have to hand my life over. This is my medical condition. Mm. Just give me it. And the doctor did. And for the next year things were okay and how did you feel Sinead about admitting to yourself that this illness might not be episodic it might be chronic and I might need to take a medication for life how did you come to terms with that that's the thing it was at that stage you know that was seven years ago yeah. at that stage uh so I've been on them 16 years mm. good grief so seven years ago I was much more open to the possibility that there's a bigger picture going on yeah. so that what you've just de uh, described is is I is absolutely right James the, it began an internal conflict yeah. because in my soul I knew this was wrong I knew this was not the, the the only treatment for me but I just I felt almost angry at myself for ever going down this path to begin with yeah. and that began a whole battle in my head I was researching and research I became very absorbed with um internet and um any type of articles that I could get my hands on that might somehow give me comfort and I didn't even know what my view was at this mm -hmm. stage you're searching for answers aren't you answers that doctors can't provide and that you can't get from the information with the medication we desperately need to understand what's happening in our lives don't we and you're so alone and and I was so scared at this stage then to to speak up, I had at this particular. I remember at this time I had started a new job, um, so I was desperately trying to keep this awful state that I was in under, you know, away, uh, trying to hide that and put my best foot forward, mm. um, while restarting the new medicine and just at this stage believing that I would do it again another time. Yeah. And uh, at this stage, it was more right. Well, maybe the timing's not right. You know that classic. You know. Other doctors had said to me before, the timing needs to be right before you come off these sorts of, th of things, which 
you know, we could discuss for a long time because when is the right time, you know, when is the right time? It's an easy message to accept, isn't it? Because in our lives, there are things happening all the time and it's easier to put it off. And pretty soon we're on the drugs for much longer than we intended to be, partly because the doctors have convinced us that it's not the right time to stop. But the right time doesn't ever come, does it? So over the years, I did my own little bits of research and just little seeds got planted along the way. One pharmacist, for example, in London said to me, you're a young woman. You, you, you really ought not to be on this stuff. And that was all he said, you know. And it was, it, we, we, we got, we, we got into an interesting conversation about, you know, the, the other alternative treatments for the st- depression, which is, in my view, not an illness, not a mental illness anyway. Um, but the seeds got planted, and then um, I had done the cold turkey, and I knew this time I'm going to get off this properly and so with what I thought was sufficient research um still alone very alone yeah. no no I wasn't on surviving antidepressants right. forum for example yeah. this is still seven years or six or seven years ago yeah um so and I think that if that things have just exploded even in the last year or two yeah. with things like podcasts and more and more information coming out which is brilliant yeah. you know to to see but Six, seven years ago, that wasn't maybe so much on the on the horizon. So again, I did alone. I did research a supplement company that helped support people coming off, tapering off all sorts of psychoactive active medication. And um, I think actually the stuff that I got was quite was quite good, was quite helpful. I still did it much too fast, and within about five and a half months, I was off the medication. But there was the emotional fear of, right, I took this stuff for sort of 12 years now. Yeah. What do I do now? Yeah. How, how do I begin again? Then I started panicking and believing. After a few months of being clean, yeah. if you like, <laughs> that's not really a helpful word, but um, life and its difficulties really hit me yeah. quite hard. And I wondered, having read a little bit about discontinuation syndrome, whether or not I fell into that bracket. And one minute I thought I did, and one minute I thought I didn't, and then I did. And I I went through such an emotional kind of torture that I really wouldn't wish on anyone. Um, There was shame involved. There was fear. My my sleep started to be really badly affected. My appetite, my ability to concentrate. I moved back from London in the midst of my withdrawal, my whole taper, which was quite a... Big. But I look back now at how big of a a life change that is. I didn't even really consider it to be at the time. But so there I am back in Northern Ireland in a new job, not in London where most of my support, because I did have family and friends here, but my life as I knew it had been in London and some of my identity, I suppose, was wrapped up in that. And I do believe that it's very possible I was suffering from very real iatrogenic damage undiagnosed unsupported terrified to go back on them because i had gotten this far it just got to the point where even my friends and family members were so worried about me um that we we started to wonder if right this might be the case but what is the treatment for what can we do because i was not able i was just not able to function i i couldn't keep that job down i i managed to hide it from them to this day they don't know uh how much i was struggling but i quit that job because i just couldn't 
couldn't face another day. And you're in a very stressful job as a social worker. Yeah, it was hard. It, it, it was it was hard to be the new girl in a new mm. team and um, dealing with some very distressing situations. And all I was so sensitive to the words, uh, you know, psychiatry and medication, and and that, that started a whole conversation and fear in my head about where I could potentially be quite honestly it it could so easily have been me I went back to my doctor and told him I don't want to go on antidepressants again I don't want to be back on anything these things have caused this the person you see in front of you right now this shell of a person that is what that's what's caused this and what was their reaction to that Sinead in a nutshell, he, he did his best to appear that he was, lis- you know, to listen and be sympathetic. Um, he didn't have any other answers and suggested another SSRI. Yeah, he was really stumped. He didn't have any answers. Yeah. And so I said, look, I'm going to take, I'm going to try them again. But I'm taking these because they are something I have grown dependent on, like a drug addict. Yeah. Not because I believe I have some sort of illness and that these are the treatment. I'm I'm literally here taking these because I, I, I it will get me to a level of normal. Well, it's the difference between functioning and not, isn't it? Yeah. And so it was kind of almost like a ritual, James. I didn't want to take them. Yeah. And every single night I would think about taking them and then hold off. And I managed somehow to dig deep and not take them. Mm. And it became this huge, oh, it, this whole internal battle that I was really fighting all on my own um, nobody really knew the torture that I uh, you know that I was putting myself through I suppose yeah. um, so I was on one night I might take them and then the next day I'd be like no why did I do that I can do this I'm strong enough you get totally lost in your own thoughts don't you all you find is questions and like some kind of addict you think maybe things would be better if I took it but then I'll need to try and come off in the future and will I manage it it's just a never-ending spiral of thoughts, isn't it? I was searching everywhere. And at that stage, I think soon after that, I found surviving antidepressants on the internet. But I was absorbed. I wasn't working at this stage, but so I had plenty of time to start researching this. And at that stage, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was... Um, I'd fallen victim, I guess, to this. I don't like that word, but um, this was not me. <laughs> this... Yeah. This was not me. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned there about like drug addicts. I mean, at one stage, I didn't know what else to do. And I was perfectly open to the possibility that I was a drug addict. Mm. Maybe not street drugs, which I'd never tried before. Mm. But I actually brought, went along to Narcotics Anonymous meetings just looking for support or answers. Yeah. And I'll tell you something. There's no insight. I mean, I, I don't view myself in that way now. I went for a very short time because it wasn't the right space for me but those people have so much kindness and compassion and truth they're telling their truth and in those meetings I was always um I was very much a misfit I suppose because my drug of choice had been something that many of them were on yeah the doctors you know they're on their heroin and then they're given their methadone but they're also given a little bit of an SSRI and so I I, you can understand why I was feeling like I was becoming more and more frightened. I didn't really identify. I did identify with people in those rooms, but I also knew that my story was a bit different. And so eventually in November 2013, I decided to surrender and start up the Siroxit again. Right. Yeah. And this time I was going to comply with it. Um, and it was almost like a ceremonial uh I will just do this for for now. Yeah. 
and I will not look out for, I'll not blame any side effects on it. Yeah. It's all me. I'll just, I'll just take it very much like a drug addict. Yeah. You hit the drug, but you surrender to it. Yeah. And I did. And I absolutely wish that I never had, because yeah. if I thought hell had been going on before, it was just getting started. So the side effects of restarting the Siroxet after being off it for close to eight months, yeah. not functioning really at all for those eight months, but yeah. being off it must have must have rendered my poor body very and brain very, very sensitive because I started with the 20 for the next two weeks. Every symptom you can possibly imagine was present for me. I was most definitely suicidal, mm. but suicidal thoughts that were out of character for me as a yeah. person, yeah. Um, violent suicidal thoughts that had never occurred to me ever. Um, the sort of horror movie images I had couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, barely got out of bed, just about. Didn't even really cry, really but felt so agitated and easily startled. And probably the worst symptom of all was was that I felt this vibration going through my whole body as if it started at my feet and ended up my head and like an electrical wave. It felt as if I was a lab rat just connected up to to something. And there was no relief for months, actually, Mm. for months. That must have been really distressing because the biggest reason you went back on the drug was to try and get some relief and to find that actually it caused additional difficulties. That must have been really hard for you. Yeah. Um, it got to the point where I had to move in with my parents because I needed I needed supervision, I suppose. Yeah. I needed and it, the two people that you know love you most in the world. Um, they I went back to live with them for several months and... It was and remains a really slow process. I didn't really ever think that. I still get so scared that I'm never going to get better, but I clearly have gotten through some of those harder times. It took about five months for the electrical feeling to sort of subside. And I felt like I was having heart palpitations, but went for a check and my heart was absolutely fine. And that those were the, that was the real big one. But it was also lying down at night, not being able to sleep, and then my mind absolutely racing with violent imagery, yeah. racing, racing images, but distressing. Not kind of oh, what's going on? I wasn't able to say let's sit back and enjoy the show. It was so distressing to me. Yeah. But at this stage, I absolutely was open to the more than open to the possibility. I pretty much felt that this must most certainly have been the drug and because of this adverse reaction um and akathisia is what i've just described i believe is the medical term for that i decided i've got to get off this you know if i'm going to live life i'm not going to live it with this stuff as my being a slave to this stuff and so i began my taper which i continue to be on i'm still on the ssri and so where have you got to with your taper now at a relatively small dose, the doctors would probably say that's nothing. But at the minute, I'm at around about seven milligram, uh, yeah. seven milligrams. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I managed to get the liquid version of it. Yeah. Um, quite easily. Liquid certainly doesn't make it painless, but it does make it easier, and it puts you in control, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah. That's right. It puts you in control, even if it's just the visual side of it. Because yeah. previously, I had made up when I described the previous taper that was five months long. Yeah. I went to the trouble of making it up in a water solution and um, 
part some one some at one point I was shaving off bits of it. I mean, I tried everything, yeah. but um, at the moment I am on such a slow taper that I um, two days a week I drop down by half a milliliter, um, and the other day, so it kind of yeah. comes forward and goes back. Uh, that's another suggestion by another website called CETA. That's the Council for Information on Tranquilizers and Antidepressants, and they're based, ironically, in Liverpool. So I'm still on my taper. And physically, how are you finding your taper? Is it still as much of a struggle as before, or, or are things a little bit easier? Thankfully, things are a little bit easier. Um, I um, I think it's a mixture of all sorts of things. I think the passage of time in my body has perhaps allowed my brain chemistry to settle down with this drug and that I'm somewhat more hopeful that I will be able to live a life without it and maybe embracing the possibility that it could well be a long time before that happens. I might die an old lady trying to come off this stuff but I will continue to keep at, at it and you know I'm, I'm, I'm working now uh, not in social work but um, hopefully I will get back to my profession i'll wait and see um but i i'm, I'm working and more than functioning you know I'm, I'm quite positive about um i'm able to t- i'm able to look at all of this as much more in a much more wider yeah. context i'm able to see there's got to be something that needs to be learned from this We're, this is a tough gig and this is unfair but it's mine to deal with now yeah. Well, Sinead, from where I'm sitting, you've achieved an incredible amount. You need to stand back and see yourself as others do. Because if we took an Olympic athlete and put them through withdrawal, putting them back on a drug, withdrawal, putting them back on a drug, they would really struggle. And for you to have endured everything you have to be on your liquid, down to seven milligrams and have a plan for the future, Sinead, that's incredible. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, James. Um, And... Yeah, I mean that, that and that you you've just raised the anger. There's anger too that has come into it. You see, yeah. because when you once you realise that you, <sighs> you you feel angry at yourself, but also very angry at um, the manufacturers of such um, seemingly helpful products, yeah. and particularly um, the fact that you know you had David Healy on not that long ago who spoke about the you know, the studies that they did with yeah. with healthy volunteers. You know, yeah. you can't ignore that data. You're right. They already knew all about dependence and withdrawal in the early 1980s. That is what it leaves the likes of us, you know, with a job to do. We yeah. didn't ask for this job, but we've been handed it. And and if it's just to help speak up and speak out, um, you know, about what is real for us. Because there are some people out there that maybe want to continue with their on their journey with SSRIs or other antidepressants, yeah. and they don't wish to engage in this type of uh, dialogue, and that is absolutely their right. Yeah. We we feel, I guess, we feel differently. Yes, very much. And while I certainly wouldn't want to influence anyone who felt they were getting benefit to stop, I do want people to know that getting off is a very different prospect to getting on. If these drugs were as difficult to get onto as they are to get off, no one would take them. And all the stories that we're told about stay on it for six months even after you feel better, it's almost designed to get you trapped in a place where you wake up five years later and think, I just don't want to be in this position, but I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. Did you ever go through a stage where you wandered out into the world and asked yourself, how many other poor souls that I walk past 
you know, here, who else on this bus is going through this or or who else that I walk past on the street or in my daily life? I think particularly with the job that I did, I would, it was so, yeah. it's so common. Yeah. And then that creates almost a conflict within ourselves because we want to scream it from the rooftops that people yeah. need to open their eyes. Yeah. And, it, and yet it is a slight, it is a controversial topic and it is a very inconvenient truth, yeah. in my opinion. It is, I agree. And I, I know that people like you and me and on surviving antidepressants haven't challenged their doctors and end up having to manage it on their own. And then, of course, doctors say, I don't have patients telling me that the drugs are difficult to stop. No, of course not, because people have forsaken their doctors because they're judged and not supported. But Sinead, even with that lack of support, you've done really well to get where you are because every time you try to stop and don't succeed, it makes the psychological hurdle to clear much higher next time, doesn't it? It does. It does. Of course it does. And we're multifaceted. Us humans, we're multifaceted. It isn't It isn't like giving it to a rat. There are environmental factors and our personalities to take into account and how we view things and our support systems and the food we're eating and all of that it is and Sinead I just wondered if you had a friend or a colleague who was advised by doctors to take an antidepressant what would you say to them that's a really interesting and really good question to put to me um and I believe really if somebody if somebody came to me asking me that I would probably want to know what I would point out is that actually they already know the answer right. I think that if somebody comes going to somebody for advice really I think that if anything that this journey has taught me is, is is that we have a lot more intuition and a lot more answers in our uh, if we dig deep than we than we realize. Yeah. And I think that that person asking that probably already knows what it is they want to do yeah. and what is right for them. But what they're coming to me for is to sort of look for permission to do that thing that they know they're already going to do. Having said all that, if it was a family member or a close friend, um, I would most certainly give them my story. Many of them know it already, but I would want to ask them gently, have they thought of other alternatives? You know, have they have they thought of uh, herbal medicine or entering psychotherapy, which I'm engaged in and I'm very open about. Acupuncture is amazingly helpful for uh, for people that feel anxious or um, flat. Your diet, exercise, are you, you know, you doing? Are you, you doing something that you hate for seven or eight hours a day? You know, reflexology. There's so many other treatments out there, um, and really, I would suggest that they they explore all of those with the same gusto that they might be exploring the option of taking a magic pill because it's not a magic pill i agree although i wouldn't want to frighten people i would want to caution them that any short-term benefit they have from the drug may well be overturned by much more difficult longer-term experiences when they do want to stop but that is a very difficult message to give someone who is really struggling and just wants some relief from their emotional distress, no matter how short-lived that relief might be. And I'm sure most doctors are faced, you know, they're good people that want to help the person that's in front of them. And many of them are, are, are perhaps feeling torn, especially if somebody's going back or is um, in a lot of distress. Um, something I would love to see happening, and I might even consider starting or trying um is to is to kind of not in a in an aggressive way but nevertheless to 
open up the debate a bit further and target um, student doctors who are on their way into their training. They haven't yet, you know, they're at the fresh, they're freshers, they're the young 18 year olds who are going to be the doctors of tomorrow. And I just would love to see, you know, a, a, a a voluntary organisation campaigning to gently and nicely explain to doctors that there are so many patients um, uh, who who feel um, who have not experienced the benefits that these drugs claim that they can make, and that these doctors, you know, student doctors who haven't yet got the prescribing powers, they're the ones who, uh, if we can speak to and explain our story and that, uh, show them the huge numbers that. It will plant a seed in their head so that when they're finished and they're qualified, that somehow, you know, they might think twice uh, or, or start to consider other alternatives. And I think that that yeah, I would love if I could to somehow start that. I think that's a really good point, Sinead. Influencing the next generation of mental health professionals is so important, isn't it? And Sinead, was there anything else that you felt it was important to share with the listeners? Thank you, James. Um, I've noticed there's a lot in the media about being more open about mental health and mental health awareness and um you know you even have um the royals sort of getting behind you know open dialogue open conversation and so on but and, and i think that that is a double-edged sword to some extent because i can't control it but what i would hate to see is more people talking about how miserable they feel and that 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 can that's it's not normal to feel sad it's the medicalization of the normal human experience that makes me angry yeah. uh, and i believe my story is that i was a 23 year old girl who was going through the normal human experience maybe somebody that maybe i'm somebody that um uh, is perhaps a bit of a deep thinker or sensitive or whatever it's not it wasn't a a mental illness I don't believe that feeling sad or grief or feeling left out um maybe teenagers who feel left out of the cool gang at school Mm. you you don't need an antidepressant for that you certainly don't need a diagnosis and a label slapped on your medical records to stay with you forever and so it's great that there's there's a lot of publicity going on for people talking more about their mental health difficulties that is a very legitimate concept a very admirable uh idea and yet i believe to then only uh marry that up with the option of pharmaceuticals is absolutely an incomplete uh picture I agree. The removal of stigma has almost given the impression that all you need to do is talk about this with your doctor and get a pill and everything will be fine. The talking about it is great, but the underbelly of the mental health profession is the bit that needs addressing, doesn't it? It's not the nice cuddly talky stuff. It's where people disappear into years of unnecessary medication and also the forced treatment and the detention against people's will. That really does need debate and discussion too. The gap the huge and it's a huge gap and I feel you know I, I feel quite I feel strongly about that and I would also I just want to give hope to any anyone out there that um has sitting on their laptop right now or on the internet as I have been and did um for quite some time searching for answers you have the answers you already know just ask your soul dig, dig, uh, dig deep you'll have really hard days as I do still and I will probably have them when I when I become when I get off these sometime in the future and I've thrown the calendar out you know that that's another thing don't 
the advice to others who's, who are going through this is not to look at a um, a, a calendar with a, a, an end date in mind. Yeah. You, you have to respect this process and respect your own brain yeah. and your, your own body that is, listen to it. But when I get off and I'm off, I... I, I want to be able to give that bit of hope to those who um, might be going through the same thing. I ha- I still have bad days and without them, I will still have bad days mm. and I will have good days and it will come and it will go. And that is life. That That's not anything other than the experience of life. This too shall pass, whether it's good or not. And I have tried to inject a bit of laughter and fun and lightness into my life more than before um and that would be you know that doesn't cost anything if Mm. if 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 whoever is listening yeah if that gives them some some hope and anyone that hasn't taken them save yourself that uh potential difficulty absolutely there are many routes to good health and we need to understand that sometimes what our doctors tell us is an opinion not an evidence-based fact and people should really do their own research before taking a step with their health that they may later bitterly regret Sinead I can't thank you enough for talking with me today and helping me to raise these issues and to reinforce that there are many other options that people can consider as an alternative to the drugs likewise James thank you um really for for all that you're doing it's 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 remarkable and we appreciate it and we appreciate you. Well, thank you, Sinead. It's deeply humbling to be part of such an incredible community that no matter how much people have been damaged and harmed and how much personal cost there's been, they're still willing to reach out and help and support others. And Sinead, I take my hat off to you to get where you have, to be working, to be able to advise and support others. You've done brilliantly. Just step back and remind yourself of that every now and again. That's right. That is absolutely right. Thank you. Thank you, James. It was really interesting to talk with Sinead about her experiences, and I'm so grateful for her honesty and for her time, and that she was willing to share her wisdom with us too. Feedback. Thank you so much for taking the time to get in touch. And we've had a big response to the episode last week with Dr. Peter Groot and his interview about tapering strips, which are a method by which users of psychiatric drugs can gradually reduce their dosage over time without having to cut tablets or to rely on expensive liquid preparations. I wanted to share a couple of the emails with you. Dear James, hallelujah. It takes someone like you who has been through the worst of the hellish withdrawal to get something done about it. I had a nervous breakdown in September 2014 and was hospitalised for nine weeks and given Depakote in high doses, olanzapine, procyclidine and some really strong sleeping tablets. The side effects were grim and for 880 mornings since then I have suffered from nausea, diarrhoea, anxiety, feelings of imminent death and a desire to end it all. After being told by the psychiatrist that the lowest available pill of Depakote was 500 milligrams, I had to print off an illustration from the internet of a 250 milligram pill and insist that my dosage was reduced because of the intolerable side effects. After some months, metazapine had been added, and when I reached the anniversary of my incarceration, I told them no more. Not a mention of tapering, I have only learned about gradual reduction of psychiatric drugs via websites that address the problem. For the past six months, I have been trying to gradually reduce the metazapine. When I asked my GP for a prescription for the compounded equivalent of metazapine, I was told, too expensive, get a pill cutter, which of course is not accurate for really low doses. The GPs were quite happy to prescribe diazepam when I was at my lowest ebb. Dr. Groot's tapering strip solution to this problem would help me greatly. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm so sorry to hear of your experiences. And I hope you start to make progress soon. And also this email too. My daughter lives in England. She has been tapering off of clonazepam, now diazepam, per the Ashton Manual since January 2016. I'm sure you can understand it's been a nightmare. We appreciate your work towards increasing awareness of the withdrawal problems and securing assistance for the millions of people struggling to get off of these drugs and get their lives back. Your series is so informative and helpful, and this particular interview with Dr. Groot is so encouraging. My daughter is hard of hearing. The interviews are very difficult for her to follow, especially since there is no video to enable lip reading. Are transcripts of your broadcasts available? Again, thank you for your work. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to get in touch, and I wanted to respond on transcripts. For anyone that does struggle with hearing the podcast, for whatever reason, they are now all available on YouTube and they do have subtitles. Now, I do have to mention that the subtitles are automatically generated and I haven't yet had the chance to check them, but they will help those that struggle to follow the audio. To find the videos, go to youtube.com and search for Let's Talk Withdrawal, or there's a link on my own website too. Just to say also that if you're struggling with withdrawal yourself, you can visit my website, jfmore.co.uk, where there are links to information you may find useful. Please do not increase, decrease or stop your psychoactive prescription medication without the advice and support of a medical or mental health professional. Thank you so much for listening. Please come back next week for another episode. And until next time, take care. Thank you so much for listening to Let's Talk Withdrawal. Come back next week for more news and views. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe in iTunes.